When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. talk about a lot of things on this show that eh, may not really matter, right? They're fun, they're entertaining, they're silly, they're out there, but they don't necessarily affect your lives on a day-to-day basis. Here is something that does, and it comes down to the fundamental question, do you have a constitutional right to sleep on the street? Because if you do, then there's very little that cities can do about the streeted homeless. And this may soon be answered. This is huge. This did not get as much attention over the weekend as I thought it would, maybe because this news came out on Friday. But the Supreme Court on Friday agreed to decide whether cities may ticket people who are homeless and sleeping on public property. That's the issue. Do you have the right to sleep on the sidewalk or in a park? I believe the answer is no. But so far, the courts have found that, yeah, you do have that right. So the Supreme Court is going to hear this case. They're going to, they're going to determine whether cities can ticket people who are homeless and sleeping on public property or whether that is cruel and unusual punishment that violates the Constitution. And this is one of these rare instances, and I like decisions like this, where you have uh, cities that are pretty liberal and mayors and elected officials that are pretty liberal in these cities, hoping that it's the conservatives on the Supreme Court that give them what they want. Because, look, the people running these cities, they don't want to have homeless encampments set up. It's a public health hazard. It's unsightly. It is a terrible thing for commerce. It's a terrible thing for tourism. They don't want it. They want to be able to get these folks off the streets. And so they're hoping that the rightward shift of the court these last few years will make that a reality. So a city in southern Oregon told the Supreme Court that being barred from ticketing homeless people has created a dire situation around makeshift encampments. And they're not just in Oregon. They're in Seattle. They're in San Francisco. They're in L.A. They're in Chicago. And they're claiming in this Oregon city that this has hamstrung them when dealing with crime. It's hurt them when dealing with fire. And this is the what they said in uh, their court filing. They have seen the reemergence of medieval diseases. So this Oregon city filed an appeal last year of a lower court ruling on this issue. 
And according to Fiend Evangelist, who represents the city, Grants Pass, Oregon, it's called, the tragedy is that these decisions are actually harming the very people they purport to help. Completely agree. Meantime, Ed Johnson, an attorney at the Oregon Law Center representing the other side, said the case is not about a city's ability to regulate or prohibit encampments. Johnson says, nevertheless, some politicians and others, and I guess I'm included in the others here, are cynically and falsely blaming the judiciary for the homelessness crisis to distract the public and deflect blame for years of failed policies. So the question of whether people without homes can be punished under laws that are designed to regulate public camping and sleeping outside, this has been percolating in the federal courts for years now. And you have several states and several cities grappling with homelessness that's just out of control. So the Supreme Court declined to consider a similar case four years ago after an appeals court in California ruled that homeless Americans could not face criminal prosecution. So at issue in this latest case is a ruling from that same court, the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which held cities could also not issue tickets to homeless people who were using blankets pillows, or means to protect themselves from the elements. The court noted that the city handed out dozens of citations each year, sometimes with fines that reached several hundred dollars. So they're calling this case the most significant Supreme Court involvement in the rights of homeless people in decades. That's the description from the National Homelessness Law Center. And the court's ruling, whatever they end up ruling, is going to have a huge impact on the 250,000 people in our country who sleep outside on a given night. I'd love to hear your view. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor about the Middle East situation. And then uh, in about uh, an hour, I'll be joined by uh, veteran radio talk show host Freddie Mertz. We have a whole bunch of news that we're going to go into with him. I think... The important thing in keeping in mind with the Supreme Court, and this is the mistake that everybody makes, liberals, conservatives, centrists, people who are non-political, they think that by the Supreme Court going in their direction, meaning uh, advocating or deciding something that results in a public policy outcome that they agree with, they're doing their, their job. No, the Supreme Court should not be functioning as the super legislature. It should not be functioning as an ultimate veto council. What the Supreme Court should determine is if what they're trying to do is legal. Now, I understand the arguments on both sides. I actually read the one side's paperwork. I didn't read both, but I I hope to read both. And it's not as cut and dry as people like me make it sound. Now, my view is you do not have a constitutional right to sleep on the street. Now, I recognize the consequence of that is that you're going to basically be fining people that may not have a place to stay for the night. They may not have a shelter bed. They may not have some place to go. But if this ruling is upheld, this lower court ruling, if this lower court ruling is upheld, then I think cities are largely going to be powerless to deal with their own homeless problem. I think cities 
should be experimenting with what works. And again, it can't be cruel and unusual, which is why this is coming before the Supreme Court to begin with. But I don't think, you know, mandating that someone can't sleep on the sidewalk as long as there's a shelter bed available to them, I don't think that's cruel and unusual. Now, what they're saying here is if you have uh, 10,000 people on the street, um, the only way that you can get them off the street is if there's at least 10,000 shelter beds. Now, think about that. What they're essentially saying is even if there are 9,000 vacant shelter beds, I can't go and, as a police official... I can't go and take 9,000 of these people off the street and put them in a shelter bed because there's not 10,000 shelter beds available. I mean, to me, it's an absurd, absurd argument. But, again, I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying it because it is um, it is an interesting legal question. I will tell you, though, of everything the Supreme Court does this year, this is going to affect your life and your city, whether you're homeless or not. This is going to affect your life and your city, whichever city you happen to live in, more than almost anything else they decide. And yet, I haven't heard much coverage of this so far, when this is remarkably significant. 800-848-9222, the Supreme Court, again, deciding on Friday that they're going to decide, they're going to hear the case about whether or not you can legally sleep on the street. This has far-reaching implications. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Tony in New Jersey. Hi, Tony. How you doing? Um, I got a story to tell you if you have the time. Well, I mean, let's make it a short one just because we have Colonel McGregor Um, here, but okay. Okay. It's about my father. During a depression, he was on a train and he he fell asleep. And when the train stopped, uh, he got caught by some goons that worked for the, the railroad. And what they did, they brought him to court. And they asked him how much money he had on him. Well, he only had $15 on him. So when he went to the judge, the judge asked him uh, how much money he had on him. And he said $15. So the judge says, well, in this town, now this is in the Midwest. He said, this town, if you don't have $20 on you, you're a a vagrant. And for that, you have to go uh, do time on the train gang. Wow. Oh, my yes. goodness. And he went on the train gang, and uh, he was there for a while, and he said something to one of the guards, and they thought he was being disrespectful, and they whipped him. They gave him 10 lashes on the back, and at that time, it was segregation, and this is like the late 1930s. Right. And... Uh, there was a black girl that said something, and she got double his amount of lashes. I mean, that's awful, Tony. So what he did was, when he went back to the jailhouse, he got permission to call Western Union, and he and he left a message for his brother. And he told his brother he needed $5 to get out of town because he, didn't, he told him the story, mm-hmm. what happened to him. And uh, my my uncle sent him the money, and then he went to the judge, and he told him I got twenty dollars. So yeah. he showed him the twenty dollars. So they let him go, but as he was leaving town, the sheriff was in his truck. He asked him if he needed a ride, and once my father saw the sheriff, he 
you said no. When he ran out, he actually ran out of town. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. And he, ne- yeah, I and mean, he never went back. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I mean, Tony, that's a horrible story, and uh, I'm glad that they don't have vagrancy laws anymore uh, because I think these vagrancy laws are clearly unconstitutional. And I mean, to get to the point of actually getting lashes and beats, I mean, that that is just crazy. Although, I'll be honest, I was, inter- I was interested in the story, and I'm glad you told me, and you told it in a very interesting manner. But I don't know what that has to do with the Supreme Court's decision to hear this case and what the implications of what the Supreme Court will rule on this and how it affects cities. I don't think that that – well, I mean, maybe you're making the broader point that because they declared the vagrancy laws unconstitutional, maybe this is a logical extension of that. I don't know. Hey, uh, let's try and squeeze in at least one more here before we get to Colonel McGregor. Lisa's in Connecticut. Hi, Lisa. Wow, what a story was that? Yeah, that, that was, was something. Gee. Wow, wow. There's no public lashes or anything anymore. Like, wow, that's wild, right? Poor guy. Um, I would leave town, too. Yeah, you and me both. Um, yeah, you know, uh, the homeless situation is a really big thing to me because I have two girlfriends that are homeless in New York City right now. I have to help them and deal with them, you know, and check on them and do wellness checks and everything. You know, this brings up a really interesting point. So how... If the homeless people are being ticketed and they have no jobs and they're homeless, how are they going to pay the ticket? Well, I mean, that's exactly what the homeless advocates are saying, right? They're saying it's completely unfair for people that uh, can't afford a place to live to be hit with all these fines. And I get that. But then the logical consequence is you have what they have in San Francisco and L.A., which you have these basically these tent cities. You have these encampments. You have these people basically permanently camping out on on the sidewalk. Now, that's not just their sidewalk. It's your sidewalk Mm -hmm. and my sidewalk. It's a public sidewalk. I don't think you should be able to move into someone's uh, someone else's property which this is public property and essentially claim that as your own so i think i don't think most people expect the homeless to pay these tickets but i think the the reason that cities like this right right to at least uh, force them i hate to use the term but that that's the term force them into shelter or some sort of temporary housing so that they're not setting up camp on the street. But again, I don't want to oversimplify the case because it is a complicated case. And uh, I'm eager mm-hmm. to see what the Supreme Court does on this. Thank you, Lisa. Best of luck to your girlfriend. One other thing I wanted to say, one, one other thing I wanted to say is that, you know, this big thing with the homeless and dealing even with these two girls that I know, they are so scared to go to a shelter. Oh, I've heard that. It's yeah. so dangerous. Yeah. But a lot of the homeless, they don't want to go to the shelter. And that's a big, big problem. Oh, I know. With the homeless well, situation. You know, David. Refused to go. David uh, from the Bronx, formerly David in, in Huntington, he's been very yeah. open about how, you know, he was in a shelter and they didn't have exactly ideal situations for him. So I, I recognize where a lot of people are coming from. Those of the, the you that are holding, if you want to comment, you're welcome to. Otherwise, we'll talk with Colonel Douglas McGregor straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? 
Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A fascinating thing has occurred over the last 72 hours or so. We have seen scores of public officials, well, maybe not scores, but we've seen a handful of public officials that are considered either the most right-wing members of their party or the most left-wing members of their party all essentially saying the same thing. We've seen Republicans like Thomas Massey and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Democrats like Ro Khanna and uh, Premia Jayapal all say that President Biden's latest military attack in a country that has never attacked the United States, Yemen, is completely unconstitutional. And for him to go about this without congressional approval is completely not only improper, but unwise. So um, now whenever you have people on the far left and on the far right kind of getting together and saying the same thing, it makes me stand up and take notice. But the thing that I'm asking is it may be unconstitutional. Let's stipulate for the purposes of this discussion that it is. But what does it do to make America safer? Well, my go-to expert when it comes to national security and anything related to the military is uh, our resident warrior scholar, also happens to be one of the most popular guests we have on this program regularly uh, on the list of the most downloaded podcasts that we had last year. I think all three or four of the interviews that we did with him was among the top ten. He's not only a retired U.S. Army colonel, an author, a former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. He's also a senior fellow at the American Conservative. Very pleased to welcome back to the show Colonel Douglas McGregor. Colonel, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. You know, Colonel, we're always talking about death, destruction, and uh, all these serious, weighty issues. What do you do for fun? Do you ever kick back, watch football, or uh, you play golf or something? What's your go-to leisure activity? Well, I like to scuba dive whenever I can, oh. which unfortunately isn't very frequently. <clears throat> you know, you got to go to some place that's warm. And I live in northern Virginia, uh, and having learned to scuba dive in the North Atlantic off the coast of Newport, Rhode Island, I don't want to repeat that experience. That was pretty rough. <laughs> I so, can no, imagine. I do like to do that. And, uh, you know, other than that, I, I enjoy classical music, and, and I you know, used to play, play the piano, I studied piano for a while, but I, I've kind of fallen apart on that score. 
Uh, well, see, uh, this is the level of depth that I was looking for. I, I think you're a lot more well-rounded in a lot of people's minds already. All right. Um, help us understand this Yemen situation. I think most Americans, they have not necessarily followed the conflict that has been going on in Yemen for uh, the last 12 years or so. And there's even just a very basic understanding of what's going on there within the last three or four days. Explain to us what's happening happening in Yemen, and what is the United States' role currently? Well, some of your listeners will recall that there was a very serious war in Yemen that went on for several years. Uh, It finally reached a a kind of conclusion between Saudi Arabia and the Yemeni tribesmen we refer to as the Houthis, or overwhelmingly Shia, or Shiite tribesmen. And uh, they essentially fought each other to a standstill uh, over a number of different issues, that ended, as I said, largely in 2016, and, and we had a hand in helping to end it. You'll recall there was a terrible famine. Uh, th- hundreds of thousands of people suffered. Tens of thousands died. So we, we widely opposed it and, and finally discovered, you know, this has got to stop, and we prevailed upon the Saudis to negotiate. Now, what's happening today is that Yemen has advanced quite a bit, and the only people that would help the Houthis at the time were the Iranians, who were also Shiite. Mm-hmm. So the, the Houthis are Shiite Arabs, and uh, initially they sought help from other quarters. They actually tried to negotiate with the Saudis. They couldn't do it. The Saudis were cooperating with al-Qaeda to kill as many Houthis as possible. And that's when they went back to Iran and said, you've got to help us, which they ultimately did, armed them and helped them drive off the Saudis and, and kill as many of the al-Qaeda fighters that were in their country as they could. Today, uh, the Houthis, being Arabs, have declared war for all intents and purposes on Israel. And I have to understand that all of the militias that we refer to all the time as Iranian proxies or Iranian-backed that are in Iraq or Syria or Yemen or uh, southern Lebanon, they're all Arabs. And as Arabs, they can all agree universally that what the Israelis are doing in Gaza is to simply simply a, an operation of mass murder and expulsion to either kill or push all the people that live in Gaza out of Gaza. So they decided to declare war, and they, they accurately concluded that the easiest thing they could do was to disrupt shipping that moves from the Indian Ocean up through the Red Sea uh, and ultimately the Suez Canal. Much of it does go to Europe, but some of it turns to the west and, and goes into Israel, either through the Gulf of Aqaba or uh, in the eastern Mediterranean. They've been very successful with uh, relatively old technology. Mm. They're not using the best and the newest technology the Iranians have because the Iranians haven't given it to them. But they've given them some very good missiles. Uh, they're subsonic, which means they're easier to target and shoot down, and lots of drones. And they've, they've been remarkably successful. We decided to attack them because we thought that by doing so, we would stop this. And in, the sad outcome is that we've turned the region into a war zone, effectively. Said it publicly, it is now a war zone. So you have no one who is willing to ensure any commercial ships to move through the Red Sea. So in doing what we've done, we've actually defeated our purpose, which was to try and open the Red Sea to commercial traffic. Mm. Now no one will go there. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, talk about uh, talk about counterintuitive. My goodness. Uh, so, needless to say, it sounds like the answer to my question of is this a wise thing for the United States to do at this point? Your answer is no. Well, I think the first thing we should have done, which is the last thing we do if we do it at all, is that we should have talked to the Houthis. Now, I'm told that we have back-channeled a message to Iran, which we are currently threatening with a war, to somehow or another prevail upon the Houthis not to do what they're doing. But the truth is that the Houthis are Arabs, and while they appreciate Iran's support, they are firmly committed to this war with Israel. Mm -hmm. So they are not going to stop. But what we could have done is talk to them and try to reason with them. And, of course, they would have said, well, if you want us to stop— you Americans need to stop the Israelis from murdering tens of thousands of people and driving them out of their homes and making Gaza unlivable. We have refused to do that. So I'm not sure what else we could have done, but I don't think we explored it at all with the result that I think the Houthis will once again attack commercial ships if they see any. They'll probably try to attack our ships, our warships. They've already tried a couple of times without much success because, as I said, this is not the newest up-to-date technology. These are not missiles designed to sink ships by any stretch of the imagination. So we're, we've made it a war zone. Nobody will go into the Red Sea. It's actually worse than it was before we started. And I hear people in Washington now talk about the use of ground forces to go into the mountains of Yemen and dig mm-hmm. these people out and shoot them. And what I tell people is that, you know, our British allies spend some time down in Yemen and fought many of these tribesmen, and that was a pretty unrewarding experience. And after fighting for several years, they packed up and simply left. It's a terrible place to fight a war. And these people have lived there for a long time. They are very tough. They've taken heavy losses in the past. And I don't see much evidence that we did much damage with our strikes. We seem to have hit a lot of the same targets that the Saudis and we back before 2016 struck And those areas were fairly easy to target and find, but whether or not they actually harmed the larger military capability of the Houthis is very much open to debate. Now, the worst thing the Houthis can do is if we keep this up, is that they could begin destroying oil infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And once you begin destroying oil fields, uh, things get very dicey. I mean, the Turks just within the last 24 hours launched an airstrike against oil infrastructure in eastern Syria, which is currently under control of uh, Kurds and others that have been harassing Turkey. I don't know what's going to happen as a result of that, but it's a bad idea. And all of the oil infrastructure in the Persian Gulf is very fragile and very vulnerable. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, former uh, senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. So, uh, Colonel, given what you said we should have done, which was talk to the Houthis and tried to get them to stop the attacks on uh, vessels in the Red Sea, what should we do now? If if you were advising the current Secretary of, St- of Defense or the current president, what would you be telling them about what the United States should do prospectively as it relates to this Yemen situation? Well, this is a, this is a tough uh, question because we've already shot ourselves in the foot by turning the mm. Red Sea into a war zone, and the insurance companies that keep the commercial vessels moving won't uh, insure anybody going into it. 
I don't know how you reverse that because as long as there's a hoodie that can launch a drone or a missile of any kind, I suspect that Lloyds of London and others will all say no thank you and you have to drive around the uh, Cape of Good Hope down in South Africa and all the way up into the Mediterranean through the Strait of Gibraltar or further north. So I, I, I don't think there's an easy answer. To do nothing at this point would seem to be a bad idea, but it's actually a good idea insofar as not sending ground troops into the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Our Saudi allies or partners, whatever you want to call them, actually told us not to attack the Houthis, and they said they would not join us in any attack on the Houthis. And there is no love lost between the Sunni Arabs in Saudi Arabia and the Shiite Arabs in Yemen. They obviously have been at war. They don't like each other. But they would have nothing to do with it, once again, because all of the Arabs are opposed to what the Israelis are doing. And they're trying to, to persuade us to intercede and put an end to the operation. So unless we're willing to turn to the Israelis and say, halt your operations in Gaza, uh, and I don't see any evidence that we will do that, I'm not sure there's a great deal that we can do. Mm -hmm. For the moment, the commercial traffic is going to be rerouted, however inconvenient and expensive that may be. I referenced the objections of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ro Khanna that this is being done without a congressional approval. Is that a concern that you share? Have we've seen too much of, uh, for lack of a better description, an imperial presidency that uh, doesn't go to Congress when it comes to military adventurism? <clears throat> Frank, I think we've had a, an imperial presidency since FDR was in office. Uh, and I, I generally tell people they don't like to hear it. They, we live in a post-constitutional government uh, or post-constitutional America. Uh, Congress rubber stamps certain things because of donors that want those things to happen. And I, at the moment, there is a unanimity of interest between the people sitting in the White House and the people on the Hill. They tend to agree that they want war in the Middle East. We are going to back the Israelis unconditionally. And if necessary, we're, we're ready to go to war with Iran. Uh, so I don't see any evidence that you're going to get the kind of constitutional breaks uh, on action that we would, we would have seen, say, 100 years ago. Well, that's uh, certainly uh, unfortunate and, you know, but unfortunately probably pretty realistic. One of the things that we've heard uh, over the weekend is threats of uh, Houthi reprisal, essentially warning the United States and the U.K. that there's going to be hell to pay for their decision to engage with the Houthis militarily. Is that a concern that, uh, that you think Americans should be worried about? Well, if it's a concern, particularly if it interferes or disrupts supply chains as well as commercial traffic, it's a it's a, a serious concern if they attack oil infrastructure. I mean, it, what's there to stop them from attacking oil infrastructure mm -hmm. in the Persian Gulf? Now, I don't think they want to do that because those are fellow Arabs. But on the other hand, uh, they may see that as a useful way to demonstrate just how potentially powerful they can be. And again, you know, they they did damage some of the oil infrastructure and many of the oil fields and uh, refineries and so forth were protected by Patriot missile systems and the Patriot missile systems did not down any of the long-range drones that struck the those areas in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. 
So I think they can do some real damage. I suspect that's a, a real possibility. Look at what are the vulnerabilities. One of the problems that we Americans have is that we never examine our vulnerabilities. We tend to think of ourselves as overwhelmingly powerful, as the uh, sort of invincible right. and vulnerable superpower. Well, we're not. And uh, the simple disruption in oil infrastructure and the, and the consequential disruption of supply chains across the Indian Ocean, uh, between Africa, the, the Middle East, China, Japan, Korea, uh, are very serious, extremely serious. And, you know, they could send the world into an economic spiral without a great deal of difficulty. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know what they'll do. But we don't ask those questions. Before, before you do something, you must always ask the question. Uh, to, we have to measure whatever we think we're going to gain by what we might lose. So while bombing somebody may be very satisfying inside of Washington and make uh, the men and women on the Hill feel powerful and influential, it may actually be a very dumb idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think this will turn out to have been a very dumb idea. But given given where I think we're headed right now, uh, we're going into a regional war. It's going to take another three months for this to coalesce, but I think we're going to see a major regional explosion in April and May. Uh, and it's going to be far more than we ever anticipated because the entire region is enraged by this in Gaza and, and our complicity in it. So now you essentially have a situation where the United States is very involved in three different wars, right? You have the Ukraine situation, which, if time permits, I'll ask you about. You have the situation with Israel and Gaza, which now seems to have expanded to Lebanon as well. And you have the situation in, um, you know, in uh, in Yemen. How much more escalation do you expect to see? I mean, we've already seen, um, you know, some members of the president's own party, including Bernie Sanders, who I uh, suspect you don't generally agree with. But he he was on television yesterday on CNN saying, Jake, if I use the word Dresden, Germany to you, you think about the horrific destruction during World War Two of that city. What is going on in Gaza now in three months is worse than what took place in Dresden over a two-year period. This is a catastrophe. He actually said this is a catastrophe. I'm curious where we go from here. You've said it's likely to get worse. What does that look like? Well, in terms of uh, bomb tonnage, uh, Senator Sanders is correct. Uh, we, With the exception of the attack on Hamburg, which, which firebombed that city, killed 40,000 people in a very short period of time. All the other, all the other attacks in Germany, including the, what you just mentioned, Dresden and so forth, were much less violent and less destructive than what the Israelis have done in Gaza. So Senator Sanders is right. By the way, I don't agree with his views on domestic politics, but he and I are much closer mm -hmm. on foreign policy. Now, if you've got to go back to Israel because all of this begins and ends in Israel. Uh, the Israeli government decided to go into Gaza, and ostensibly it was for the purpose of punishing uh, the Gazan population to some extent, but really to destroy Hamas and rescue hostages. Well, it became pretty clear that this was going to take a lot longer than they anticipated, and I think they sub subsequently reverted 
to the old plan uh, that dates back decades to complete clearing Arabs out of Israel. And uh, Gaza seemed like a great place to start. And the attack on 7 October, even though now, now we've had a lot of information that suggests that not all of the alleged atrocities were committed on 7 October, was nevertheless a horrific attack. And this was used as, a, as an emotional uh, issue to drag Israel and its population into a full-fledged war. And let there be no mistake about it, 85-plus percent of the Israeli population is soundly behind this war to destroy Gaza and its population. They absolutely believe in it, and they're committed to it. However, after 100 days, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for a lot of reasons. Uh, Hamas has turned out to be a much tougher opponent than anticipated. Uh, it's very, very difficult to go into these built-up areas, particularly after you've destroyed them and made the area much easier for the defender than it is for the attacker. And we learned that during the Second World War. If you were going to go take a city, the biggest mistake you could make would be to destroy it. You wanted it largely intact because it makes it far easier for you to go into the city and deal directly with the defenders. Now the Israelis can't do that. They, they find tunnels, and they find tunnels, and they find lots of empty tunnels, and they don't necessarily find all of the Hamas fighters that they've been looking for. They've made claims that they've killed 8,000 Hamas fighters, but we see no corpses to indicate that. What we do see are a lot of dead civilians. So I think at this point the Israelis have taken a short pause on the ground, They've pulled out some of their battalions and brigades, which were chewed up and exhausted, and they're probably going to be refitted. But each night the bombing continues, and I expect that that will continue into the indefinite future because Mr. Netanyahu has said this war will go on for months, potentially years, notwithstanding whether or not Israel could actually withstand that kind of economic damage. So now he's talking about turning north and redirecting the ground force towards the border with Hezbollah. In other words, his answer to failure to achieve his aims in Gaza is to escalate elsewhere. Mm. Mm. And he's going to escalate, I think, in Lebanon against Hezbollah. Now, what's the benefit to Israel of escalating against Hezbollah? Well, the benefit is that it will probably drag us into the war. Because the reason we had that carrier battle group that has not yet been replaced, as I understand it, but probably will be shortly, was to supplement and augment Israeli air power in a war against Hezbollah. Now, once we are involved in the war against Hezbollah from the air, uh, I don't think it's going to be very long before we find reasons to go after Iran. Mm. We've already we've already blamed everything that is happening to us in Iraq and Syria on Iran, when in reality, Iran doesn't really need to encourage anybody to attack us in Iraq and Syria. Everybody wants us out. They wanted us out for a long time. Now that we're backing unconditionally whatever the Israelis want to do in Gaza, they want to kill us. Uh, the smart thing would have been to get out. President Trump wanted to get us completely out of Syria and Iraq in uh, October, November of uh, 2020. But his opportunity to make those things happen passed, and that, that opportunity was lost. So then you're up against Iran. In the meantime, you have problems in Egypt. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu has said that he's going to send the Israeli Defense Force into the so-called Philadelphia Corridor. This is the territory that 
lies between Gaza and Egypt. In other words, that southern mm-hmm. border, because it's a sieve. It, too much gets in, too much comes out. And he says it's got to stop. And the only way to do that is to go in there with the Israeli Defense Force. Well, that could very easily uh, lead to a war with Egypt, because that's a direct assault on Egyptian sovereignty. And people who point out that the Egyptians and the Israelis cooperated against ISIS and ISIS-related Islamists in Sinai fail to understand that uh, Hamas is not viewed in the same way that ISIS was. Hamas is viewed as a resistance organization against Israeli occupation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Egyptian population is celebrating Hamas. The Egyptian population was happy to support the destruction of ISIS. So Mr. Or General Sisi, who runs uh, Egypt, is going to have to make some hard decisions. Uh, is he going to sit there and let the Israelis walk all over the Egyptians and do what they want, which is, of course, what we would like? Or is he going to say, no, uh, if you do that, we will, we will have to confront you militarily? I don't know. I think uh, Sisi's in a tough position. So is King Abdullah in Jordan. He has millions of Palestinians in his own country. They are all ready to arm and cross the Jordan River and go into the West Bank to support the Palestinians there who are under pretty severe pressure and periodic nightly raids and attacks by the Israeli Defense Force. Thousands of them have been placed under arrest and numbers of them have been killed. So you've got a problem in Jordan. You've got a problem in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates. Now, they're not interested in a war. That is, the leadership isn't. But their populations are enraged. Iraq's population is enraged. It's Arab population. The Kurds, of course, are completely divorced from all of it. But the Arabs are enraged. And it's going to be very difficult to contain that rage. And the governments are going to feel compelled to do something. Because if they don't, if they do not act decisively and lead their countrymen against Israel, well... They're probably going to be removed right. from power. Uh, Colonel, uh, I know you've been already been very generous with your time. I know it's late. I'm going to let you get some rest. I have two final questions for you, uh, which I, I think will be brief. I know you've done a lot of advising of the Israeli military over the years. Uh, the uh, chief of the Israeli Defense Force uh, general staff made your book required reading for high-ranking uh-huh. officers. It's been publicly reported that you traveled to Israel to meet yes. with the IDF general staff and uh, some of the their senior officers to discuss uh, ways to transform it into the uh, 21st century fighting force. Has this whole situation, the war, America's support of the war, the uh, recent strikes in Yemen, has this since October 7th situation made Israel safer and more secure? And has it made the United States safer and more secure? No. It hasn't. Uh, The Israeli senior military leaders, in fact, the professional component of the Israeli Defense Force, which is overwhelmingly citizen soldiers, as you know, but the professional military component is of very high quality. These are very bright people, very smart people. I don't know what was discussed in private, but I'm quite certain that the Israeli military leaders made clear, you know, the problems associated with going into Gaza the way they have. Uh, but they probably weren't uh, listened to. I know that they understand what it means to take on Hezbollah, and no doubt they have made those views clear as well. 
the Israelis are the Israeli Defense Force is hard pressed if it has to deal with both of those things simultaneously, as well as an unstable uh, West Bank. But the bottom line is that we and the Israelis are very isolated in the world right now. Uh, you know, this vote in the U.N. and our absolute refusal to acknowledge what's happening in Gaza has put us in a very difficult position, particularly with the global south and with uh, Russia, China, India, Brazil, all, all the major powers, the people we associate with BRICS. Now, some people may sit there and say, well, who cares? What difference does it make? Well, the world has changed, Frank. Uh, the people that live in uh, the Middle East, in Central Asia, in Southwest Asia, and Eastern Europe, these are not backward peasants. These are not people without understanding. They are not all fools. You know, 50 years ago, large numbers of Arabs couldn't even read and write. Well, the literacy levels have risen dramatically. They all have cell phones. They understand the Internet, and many of them are very savvy technologically. It is a mistake to dismiss them. It's a mistake to treat them badly, to ignore their interests. And I think we're going to pay a terrible price for it. And I, as I said before, I think events are pointing towards this war with Iran, and that will not be the end. Russia will not, will not allow Iran to be destroyed. And eventually you will see the Turks come into this. And the Turks are a regional superpower. And the real question in everybody's mind is what happens with Israel's nuclear weapons? And they're preparing for that. Iran is certainly preparing for it. And the Turks can easily acquire nuclear warheads from Pakistan if they think they need them to deter the Israelis. So this is a very dangerous path we're on right oh, now. Yeah, yeah. And I don't see any off-ramps. I see no one in Washington thinking any of it through. And my concern about Israel is a little different from everybody else's. I'm worried that this could be the end of Israel. That's how serious the mm -hmm. situation is. Remember, Israel's not a very large country. And you can destroy a country without necessarily marching over it in great numbers. You have missiles, conventional and otherwise, that can do enormous damage. And that's something I don't want to see happen to Israel. I've always felt we had an obligation to help Israel out of this mess not double down on it and make it easy for them to essentially drag us in and create suicide in, in the regional war that I think is coming. We've been talking with Colonel Douglas McGregor, author, former senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense. At one point uh, was uh, President Trump's election to become uh, ambassador to Germany. Uh, didn't ultimately come to fruition. Final question, sir, um, not related to this directly, but there was a lot of criticism of the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and the Biden administration more broadly for how they handled the hospitalization of Secretary Secretary Austin and the lack of knowledge that uh, apparently everybody, including the president, had about this hospitalization. There are even some Republican members of Congress that have called on uh, General Austin to resign. Give me your view on this. How big of a deal was this? It's very serious. Uh, you, you're not, you were living on the edge of war. In other words, we may not have a declared war in front of us, but we live on the edge of war. We've already failed miserably in Ukraine. Ukraine is in ruins. It's destroyed. Uh, Russia will ultimately decide the fate of Ukraine. We'll have nothing to do with it. We keep trying to provoke them. It won't work. The Russians are too smart for that. And we are not prepared for a regional war. Uh, 
Uh, I don't know Lloyd Austin personally. I don't dislike him personally. I'm not sure uh, he's the right man for the job, but I do know that he has raised his voice from time to time and warned people about the fact that that bombing the Yemenis, backing this operation in Gaza, these things are leading us down a dangerous road. I know he said that. And so I wish him well. I hope he recovers. And I'm not sure, sure what's wrong with him. But the Secretary of Defense is too close in the chain of command to the Commander-in-Chief to be missing in action. There's something radically wrong inside this administration. I, I think it's very amateurish. It's not well-organized. Decision-making is poor. So I, I'm really worried. I, I begin to have fourth-turning nightmares on a routine basis when I look at this group of people. Well, on that uh, optimistic and uplifting note, Colonel, it is always <laughs> uh, always a treat to talk with you. I appreciate the insight. I get an education whenever we speak. Thank you. All right, Frank. Colonel Happy Doug, New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. I will accept that Happy New Year, even though uh, it's a little late than the official guidelines allow. Uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, if you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. I paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime and bad mistakes. I've made a few. Queen singing about we being the champions. Uh, this is a, a birthday bumper music selection from Jeff Benjamin, one of the most accomplished runners out there. And not just a good runner, but a guy very involved in the running community and uh, one of the leading running journalists anywhere a big listener to this show and he's actually going to be in he's, he's going to be at the olympics so uh, i told him he would uh, we'd have him call in from i think it's in paris this year from paris for the olympics you tell us what's happening there hey uh those of you that are holding we will get to you next hour and freddie mertz is here veteran radio talk show host Freddie Mertz will be here. We'll chat about anything and everything. And when Freddie Mertz shows up, it's absolutely unpredictable. Keep asking questions.